Thank you, Allie. All right. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see everybody here tonight. Wave hello. Hi, everybody. Good. There we go. A little life. Excellent. I'm excited to be here uh, to be able to introduce this new sermon series tonight for us. This sermon series, just like Ali said, this is uh, a series called Jesus, Architect of My Personality. It's a seven-part series kind of in the middle of this larger year-long series that we're in on Luke. And I love this talk about personalities. I love all things personality. I've you know, done the Myers-Briggs and the DISC profile and the Enneagram and the Strengths Finder and stuff like that. I love all those things. And tonight, we're not going to be really doing personality tests, although, although I'm interested, actually. I want to find out kind of our, our ratio of uh, introverts and extroverts in the room. So I'm just going to ask you to participate for a moment. You're going to raise your hand again in just a moment. But for the introverts, now, if you're an introvert, probably your motto is, I'm okay, you're okay in small doses. That's the introvert's motto. When you go to a party, you're looking for that quiet corner where you don't really have to talk to too many people or where you can stick right with the person that you came with. How many, I'm curious, how many introverts do we have in the room today? Oh, good number, yeah. My wife is a hardcore introvert and I'm a hardcore extrovert, so you can see that that's a lot of fun in our relationship. I love the way that God has opposites attract like that. How about the extroverts? Now, if you're an extrovert, you don't mind being the center of attention. You don't, you know, you love to go to parties and see how many people you can talk to. You love to hear yourself speak because that's how extroverts think. We think verbally, so we're just as curious to see what comes out of our mouth as anybody else is. How many extroverts do we have in the room today? All right, my people. <laughs> and how many of you will not raise your hand no matter what question I ask tonight? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> but seriously, we're, you know, like I said, we're not going to do a, a test tonight, but this, this series that we're in right now, this isn't so much about these personality tests as it is about personality traits, traits that Jesus teaches us about and traits that Jesus exemplifies in Scripture. And tonight we're going to be studying the personality trait or the character trait of tenacity. And tenacity comes uh, from the same root word as we get the word tendons from. And it means to, to grip something tight, to hold on tight, to hold on for dear life. And think of, try to, try to in your mind, think of the last time you, you held on to something with your hands as hard as you possibly could, as long as you could. Think about that and the way that that felt. That's the word tenacity that we're talking about tonight. We've got five kids in our family, and our family knows what tenacity is like because whether it's the remote or the last piece of cake or the dolly or whatever, our kids, we, we learn tenacity on a daily basis. But tonight we're going to look at tenacity, and we're going to look at it through the lens of a very interesting story in the Gospel of Luke. It's in the 16th chapter, and we're going to read that story right now. My friend Esther is going to come, and she's going to read that for us. And as she does, I'm going to go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we get to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. Lord, I pray tonight as we look into this story and as we look into your application, Lord Jesus, that you would just give us the nugget of truth that you want us to walk away with today. Lord, that the words out of my mouth, Lord, would be what, exactly what you would have, nothing more and nothing less, and that we would be blessed by this time together and this time studying your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
So he called him and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Master, excellent, good job. I think she deserves a hand for that. Good job. And this story, I don't know, if you're listening along as Esther was reading there, this story is a pretty peculiar story, I would say. And so to kind of recap, we've got these three different parties involved in the story. We've got the central character, which is the, the manager. Then we've got the boss man. And then we've got the people that owe the boss man money. And the boss man finds out that the manager is not doing his job well, that the books aren't lining up, the things aren't balancing. He's going to be out of a job soon. So he tells him, go get the books, bring them to me, and then you're done. You're out of here. And the manager goes and he thinks to himself, man, what am I going to do? I don't want to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? And he has this thought. He has this idea that while he's still got that signet ring of the boss man and while he's got the rubber stamp and while he's still got the authority to make deals, he's going to call all these people in who owe his master money, who owes the boss money. And he's going to make some quick deals with them. He cuts some of their uh, debts by 50%, some by 20%. Who knows how many other ones he did. And those people come in, and you can imagine they're probably saying, whoa, this is kind of fishy. Something's funny about this. And maybe they asked him about it, and he probably did his best, his best uh, Vito Corleone impression. He put his arm around him and said, someday, and that day may never come, I will ask of you a favor. And little did they know, but he knew that that was going to be the very next day when he was out of a job. And so he brings the books, and he puts them in front of the boss man, and the, the boss looks, and he sees all these transactions dated today, 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 for 50% off and 20% off and all of that stuff. And instead of being upset about that, the boss, as crooked as he is, commends this manager for his shrewdness, for his crookedness. So when we, when we read a story like this, we're left wondering, who's the, who's the good guy in this? Who's the hero in this? If you're like me, and, and you grew up listening to Bible stories, or and you, you're used to coming to church, you're used to there their being a, a hero of the story, have faith like Abraham, or to, to pray like Daniel, or to worship like David. Maybe not exactly like David, because sometimes he did that in his skivvies, and you can do that at home, but not here. Don't worship like David here. But there's, we're used to there being, even the, the sermon that Pat brought last week, he talked about the prodigal son, and we can see a clear God figure in that, the father. And we can see ourselves in the prodigal son coming with humility and repentance as a child of God. But what do we see in this? Who are we in this? Who is God in this? What, what are we supposed to get out of this story? It's kind of confusing, to be honest. And you might be saying, well, let's keep reading, because a lot of times, doesn't Jesus, like, 
explain the parable to his disciples? And doesn't he kind of open it up for them and help them understand it after he gives the, the story? Yes, he does. And I'm glad you said that. So let's read. Let's read Luke, uh, the second part of verse 8 and verse 9. It says, for the people of this world, this is Jesus explaining it, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, if you can read that and understand for the first time, I mean, the first time you read it and understand exactly what Jesus is talking about there, then God bless you. You have the gift of discernment unlike anybody I've ever met in my life. Because for me, that that explanation, it doesn't really create a whole lot more clarity for me. Matter of fact, it, it almost offers a little more confusion. Like, what is Jesus saying there? Is he saying to, to use money to manipulate people? Is he, use, is he saying that the more people that we make friends with, then that's what gets us welcomed into heaven? What is he saying? And that's why, that's why many scholars and teachers have called this story and this passage one of the most difficult stories that Jesus told to interpret. It's difficult. And that's why I, when I found out the passage that I was supposed to be preaching on this week, I knocked on Pastor Rex's door and I said, really? Pat gets to preach on the prodigal son and I got to preach on this? <laughs> Didn't go exactly like that. I may not have said those exact words, but, but we had a, a, a few minutes to be able to talk this passage over. And that was a really valuable conversation for me. And he recommended some books for me to look at and read. And in the last two months, as I've been preparing for this, I've been able to have some great conversations with Pastor Justin Yim from Half Moon, Pastor Mike Adams from Saratoga, our friend Cecil Polydor, who's preaching this message at the same time in East Greenbush. And Brian Gare and I have taken a lot of time to, to listen to podcasts and to watch YouTube videos and to read books and to discuss this passage together as we prepared together for this sermon. And you know what? I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes when I'm reading my Bible in the morning, sometimes I'll come across a passage like this, one that's, that's tricky to, to understand and to figure out. And what do you do when you come across a passage like this in your personal Bible reading? Sometimes I'll read it and I'll say, well, I don't understand that, and I'll flip and I'll read the next page. But sometimes I'll stay and I'll park and I'll dig and I'll say, Lord, what are you trying to say here? What, what am I supposed to understand from this? And every time that I've done that, I've never been disappointed with the nugget that God gives me from that. So while this passage and while this story may be kind of tricky, it may be a little difficult to understand, I believe that tonight as we look into it together and as we, as we study it and we unpack it together, I believe this nugget that God's going to give us is so valuable and definitely worth the work. So let's look at this together. Let's unpack it together. I think the key to understanding all of this, the key to understanding this story and the application, I think Jesus hides it right here in plain sight in the second part of verse 8, the part that I just read. He said, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. And in that short phrase, Jesus, he sets up these two, these two kingdoms these two areas of living, these two ways of life. He sets up the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of light. And as we read and we'll continue to read tonight and further into the passage, we're going to see that he keeps referencing this dichotomy, that 
there's in and there's out. It's such a high contrast that Jesus puts on this. He said there's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of light. There's two ways of operating. There's two uh, rules to these kingdoms. There's two thrones in these kingdoms. In the kingdom of this world, self is on the throne. In the kingdom of light, God is on the throne. We may be asking, how, how do people operate in these kingdoms? How do people operate in the kingdom of this world? Well, they operate the way that the, the manager operated in the story that we just read. He bent everything in his life for the one goal that he had, and that was to maintain his standard of living, to take care of himself, to take care of his own comforts and desires and pleasures. And that's how the people in the kingdom of this world operate. That's not their fault. That's, that's how we're born. That's how we understand life. That's how the world works. And for, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have a relationship with Christ, were we any different before Jesus came into our lives and gave us the hope and the peace and the love that he brings? No, we weren't. But that's how this world operates. And we see that evidenced everywhere. We see that in relationships. We see that in relationships that are manipulative and controlling. We see that in relationships that are codependent and passive-aggressive. We certainly see that in the world of politics. I spent almost 10 years working uh, for the state of New York and working under Republican governor and working under Democratic governors, and, and I saw how quickly money could turn into favors and favors could turn into policy. I saw that. Because people will leverage everything they have to get what they want. That's the tenacity that's displayed by these, these children of the, the kingdom of this world. We see it in business. And that's the, that's the example that Jesus uses here as a, a business example. We know, we've seen that, that people will bend rules and they'll break rules. They'll lie and cheat and steal and be deceptive in the world of business. We know what it means to work under the table. We know what it means to, uh, you know, to cheat a little bit on taxes and things like that. We know what those things mean. If we haven't done it ourselves and we know somebody close to us who has, all in an effort to, to get more for ourselves, to satisfy ourselves, to meet our own needs and pleasures and wants and desires. In just this past year, it's been astounding to see the hundreds and thousands of stories on social media with the hashtag MeToo of men and women who have been in in the workforce and been put in terrible positions of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment by their employers because their employers were tenaciously using everything at their disposal to get what they want. Just this past week, I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine that attends here at Latham, and she told me about a job that she used to have, and she was hired at this company, it's a huge company, a big international company, and they flew her out across the country for a training. And as part of the training, she had to, uh, everybody who was a new hire, they had to attach themselves to a project. And uh, that was part of what the objective of being out there for a week was. You had to find a project where you could fit in and a project where you could show your skills and where you could thrive. And if you came back from that week without a project, then your employment was probably really at risk at that company. And so one evening, there was a networking event, and my friend was there, and, 
And there was a, a gentleman who was a, a senior manager there in the company, and he came up and he struck up a conversation with her. And they began to talk about the project that he was working on. And she was excited because she was thinking, oh, man, this is the, this is the chance. This is the opportunity. And he ordered a couple drinks for them, and they talked for a little bit. And then as they continued to talk, he ordered another round of drinks, and the conversation got more personal. They had begun talking about her resume and her experience and the things that she could bring to the project and the team. But then when it turned more personal, it was about stuff that she wasn't really that comfortable with. And at the same time, he kept putting his hand on her hand, and he kept putting his hand on her back. And it was just making her more uncomfortable the further that it went. And at, and at one point in the evening, she got the impression, and he, he motioned toward the doorway that he wanted to continue that conversation somewhere else, somewhere that was more private. And in that moment, my friend had to make a decision. What was she going to do? Was she going to give up this opportunity that she had to be part of this project? She's across the country. She's on the other side of the country. Who's going to know? Was she going to compromise and do that? Was she, or was she going to throw away everything that she'd worked for, this job that was so important, her parents were excited that she had this job. Was she going to throw that all away and stand up for what she believed in? That senior manager was living and operating by the rules of this world. He was leveraging everything that he had to get what he wanted. And I think if we knew how many of our moms and sisters and wives and daughters have been faced with that exact circumstance, I think that would turn our stomach. But that's how things operate in the kingdom of this world. And as, even as blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ, even as sons and daughters of God, we're faced with the temptation to operate in this system, to put ourselves on the throne. And sometimes it can feel like we're standing in the middle of a river and everything is coming at us and the current is pushing hard and we have to try with everything we have to maintain our footing because this is so pervasive, it's so persistent, the kingdom of this world. As we were preparing for this sermon, Brian and I came across, actually Pastor Rex recommended this book by Chuck Swindoll, a commentary. And, and the way that Chuck Swindoll put this was so perfect that I wanted to read it to you verbatim. He said, this parable isn't really a story about business principles. It's a story about what's at the core of a person's life and about deciding which set of rules to play by. According to Jesus, we have two choices, the dominion of evil inhabited by the sons of this age and the kingdom of God populated by the sons of light. Unfortunately, the sons of this age consistently live what they believe, while the sons of, the light, while the sons of light are often wishy-washy about their belief. The sons of this age play by the rules of the present world order with ruthless abandon, while the sons of light switch back and forth. If we were as eager and as ingenious to attain wisdom and goodness as the unsaved are to attain money and comfort, our lives would show dramatic change. If we were as relentless in our pursuit of forgiveness and grace as the unsaved are in their pursuit of winning, our relationships would also show dramatic change. So Jesus isn't commending this this manager in the story. He's not commending him for his business sense. He's commending him for his tenacity, his uncompromising hold 
on pursuing that thing that he wanted. He's saying, man, Jesus is saying, I wish the sons of light had that kind of tenacity. What he's saying is here is he wants his followers to, to leverage everything, their creativity, their resources, all the love that's in their heart from the Father, leverage everything for the kingdom of light. And while he's saying that, let's, let's just be clear about what Jesus is not saying as well. He's not saying that we need to use money to manipulate people and control people. He's not saying that. He's not saying to use unscrupulous, dishonest uh, ways of doing business. He's not saying that making friends gets us into heaven. Jesus uses money here, and, and he knows that money back then, just like now, money is a tool that we use. It's a tool that we use, and he calls it worldly wealth because so often it's used in the kingdom of this world to, to satisfy ourselves, to satisfy our own wants and pleasures and everything like that, to, to provide for our own comfort. But he's saying that you can use this worldly wealth to make friends. And when he's talking about making friends, he's talking about making disciples, making more followers of Jesus, bringing people from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of light. We can do that. That's the way that we can use our money. And when we do that, he's not saying that that gets us to heaven. But we know that there will come a day, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that we're going to close our eyes for the last time here. And we're going to open them on the other side. And the first face we're going to see is going to be Jesus. And we all want to hear that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear that we did a good job for him while, he were, while we were here. And what he's saying is you can leverage your money. You can leverage your resources. You can leverage your time and your energy and your talents. When you do those things, when you leverage those for the kingdom, that's where we receive that warm welcome when we're on the other side. Now, Jesus continues to draw this distinction between the the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of this light, as we continue to read. In verses 10 through 12, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And again, with money, we know, we know things about money. We know that it doesn't last forever. We can't take it with us. The money that you've got in your pocket right now was in somebody else's pocket before it was in yours, and it's going to be in somebody else's pocket after it's in yours. We can't take money with us. But something really interesting, when you, when you think of the, the currency, money being the currency of the kingdom of this world, we can actually... We can actually translate that into currency for the kingdom of light. Did you know that? Because when you, when you handle your money and you handle your resources in a way that gives God glory, when you're generous, when you give money to that single mom that you know who's having trouble making ends meet, when you help out your friend who's got medical bills coming out of his ears, when you're generous to people that you don't even know, when you give sacrificially to ministries around the world who are bringing the gospel to people all over the world. And even here in the capital region, when you give to ministries that are doing that, you're converting the currency. You're converting the currency of the kingdom of this world into treasures in heaven in the kingdom of light. 
where Jesus says, moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. We're using the small things that we've been given here. Money is such a small thing in comparison to eternity, but we're converting that into treasures that will never fade away. And I know from conversations that I've had with a lot of you that so many of us have such great plans and ideas and things we want to do for the kingdom of God. And I would ask you, if you're seeing those things stall out and you can't seem to get traction on that, I would ask you, what are you doing with what's in your hand right now? What are you doing with the money that you have right now, the resources? What are you doing with the time that you have right now, the relationships, the love that you have right now? Because God is looking at what we're doing with what we have right now. And when we're trustworthy with little, he will trust us with much. Now, Jesus continues this teaching here, and he continues to create this contrast between these two kingdoms, even here in verse 13. And if, if you thought there was any gray area before, Jesus closes the door on that thought right away. We live in a culture where it's seen as good to be in this nuanced gray area, and it's true that in life there are so many things that maybe we think we know, but we don't. But Jesus does not leave any room for gray space here. In verse 13, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, I think Jesus is using money here as kind of an umbrella term for this, this kingdom of this world. And he sets these two up as being mutually exclusive. You can't be in both. You can't have one foot over here and one foot over there. You can't do it. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a true follower of me, you have to have both feet in the kingdom of light. And there were some people there that did not like what Jesus had to say. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who were so careful about every little piece of the law and careful about how they looked to other people so that they looked like they were righteous all the time, they did not like what Jesus had to say. In verse 14 and 15, we read, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And there, even in that closing statement, once again, he sets up this conflict, this tension of what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. All of the work that we've done to, to satisfy ourselves and please ourselves and the money and the time that we've spent on our pleasures and on our lusts, that's so much different than the heart we have when we're in the kingdom of light. Like I said, on the throne of the kingdom of this world, that's us, self. Self is on the throne. In the kingdom of light, God is on the throne, and we leverage everything in our lives to please him. Now, some of you may be listening to this sermon tonight, and you may be kind of skeptical, and you may be saying, listen, man, this is just not how the world works. You don't get it. You're too idealistic. You don't, you don't understand if I were to do what you're talking about, I couldn't provide for my family the same way. We wouldn't have the same standard of living. You don't know what I'd have to give up to do what you're talking about. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's true. And I love this quote from Beth Moore that I came across earlier this week. She says, whatever God is urging you to clear away cannot begin to be compared 
with what he ultimately wants to bring me. Jim Elliott was a missionary and eventually a martyr, and he said it this way. He's no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And maybe today you're sitting here and you're saying, oh, my goodness, look at my life. Look at my relationships, the way I do business. Boy, I'm not doing good with this. And you, you feel like you've got more like both feet in the kingdom of this world and neither feet in the kingdom of light, if I said that right. And you're feeling, you're feeling convicted about that. And I think it's appropriate for us to feel convicted of sin when the Holy Spirit reveals sin to us. But I, I don't want you to leave here feeling condemned. Because condemnation, there is no more condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. That comes from the enemy. So we want to push all of that away in the name of Jesus Christ right now. Because this life, this life that's lived with both feet in the kingdom of light, this is possible. Jesus wouldn't have talked about it so many times over and over and over again. We heard Pat talk about it two weeks ago when he talked about the cost of discipleship. We've heard Pastor Rex talk about it over and over in this series on Luke. Jesus wouldn't have said it so many times if it wasn't possible. So today, before we leave and as we wrap up, I want to give you five reasons to be hopeful. Five things to be hopeful about before we leave. Number one, nobody does this perfectly. Nobody does. Pastor Rex doesn't do it. Billy Graham doesn't do it perfectly, didn't do it perfectly. Your grandma didn't do it perfectly. Nobody does this perfectly. Jesus Christ is the only one who's walked this earth and lived a perfect life. So don't waste your time measuring yourself up against somebody else because nobody is perfect. We're all on the, on the other side of the line as far as perfection goes. Nobody's perfect. Number two, you don't have to do this alone. Well, you are not meant to do this alone. We do this together. That's why we come out on a Saturday night and on a Sunday morning. That's why we meet during the week, because God intended this life of discipleship and this life of obedience to be done together. You know, when you think of that picture again of standing in the river and the current pulling at you and pushing you in the opposite direction, you've got a lot more likelihood of standing your ground when you're linked arms on either side with a brother and a sister, and you're standing there together in that current. And that's why we come here to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to support one another, to listen to one another, to be accountable to each other. You don't have to do this alone. Number three... This doesn't happen instantly. This life, this journey that we're all on, it doesn't happen instantly that you go from sinner to saint in, in every aspect of your life. If you ask people who've been uh, a believer, a child of God for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, they'll tell you the same thing. They'll tell you that there, is, there are so many horizons in their life, and there are so many new things and exciting and wonderful things about their relationship with God that they learn over every horizon. They learn about life and freedom and truth. They learn about love. And that's not to say that, oh, my goodness, this is never going to end. That's to say that there are new rewards and new blessings over every horizon. And even though it doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month or a year, it does start with a decision. And today, we, we all have the ability to make a decision. If we take stock of our lives and we find that we have one foot or both feet in the kingdom of this world, today, 
we can make a decision to step out and put both feet in the kingdom of life. If you've never done that before, if you've never made Jesus, put Jesus on the throne of your life, if you've never turned from a life of satisfying yourself, of independence, of sin, you have the ability and the chance to do that tonight. I pray that you would do that before you leave this building tonight. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have, we have the chance to take stock of our lives tonight and to see where we've been sitting on the throne, whether it's in relationships or in business or whatever it might be, and to abdicate that and to give that over to God. It can start with a decision tonight. Number four, the Holy Spirit inspires and empowers us to do that. When we make that decision, it's the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us that gives us the desire, that inspires us, and also empowers us to follow through on that, to hold on to that with that tenacity. We can't do this in our own strength. Our, our tenacity on our, in and of ourselves isn't strong enough, but the Holy Spirit gives us holy tenacity to hang on to what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, to hang on to the kingdom of light with both hands. We don't know the rules of the kingdom of light. He guides us into all truth. That's what the scripture says. He gives us power when we feel powerless. And the best part is that when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this, we're cooperating with God's very best plan for our lives. The God who made you, who gave you the personality that you have, who gave you the gifts that you had, who put you in the family that he did, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And when we submit to the Holy Spirit and turn over that throne to God, we are cooperating with God's very best plan for us. And number five, and this one I love, that all of those things that we read about in the Bible, all of those promises that we've been given about joy and peace and love and life and freedom, all of that, the best parts, the very best parts of all of that are set aside for the people who have both feet in the kingdom of light. Tonight, the band is going to play in just a few minutes. And as they do, I would encourage you to take some time. Maybe you'll want to stand and sing, but I would encourage you to take some time to just do business with the Holy Spirit tonight, to lay the book of your life open to him and say, what is it? What is it that I need to hand over to you, God? so that I can have both feet firmly in this kingdom of light. And can you imagine, can you imagine for those of us who are here, I don't know if there's 400 of us here or how many there are, but can you imagine if every one of us made that decision tonight? What a change that would bring about in our families. What a change that would bring about in the places that we work, in our neighborhoods, in our church. How that would change if we leveraged everything and we held on with tenacity to what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And with tenacity, we leveraged everything we have for the kingdom of light, all of our resources, all of our relationships, all of our energy, all of our passion. What would that do for our church? What would that do for this region? It would be completely transformative. That's the life that Jesus is calling us to. And brothers and sisters, he's worth it. So I would encourage you tonight as the band plays to, to do business with God, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and to make that commitment tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you call us to this life of commitment, this life of tenacity. I thank you, Lord, that you not just call us to it, but you give us the power through your Holy Spirit to live this out. And I pray for each one of us tonight here, every single brother and sister in this room, Lord, that you would you would reveal to us through your Holy Spirit the things that we need to turn over to you, the places where we need to get off of the throne and we need to take that step and put our foot into the kingdom of light. And Lord, that when you reveal that to us, you'd give us the faith and the boldness to take action on that, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. Lord, we pray for this for your glory, that you would be glorified in our lives. And we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff, for that amazing...